Um, I have a, uh, you know, I mentioned movies on occasion from up front here, and I have a, a two-week uh, red box rule, and a, all Netflix movies are off limits for spoiler alerts. So listen, if a, if a movie's been in red box for more than two weeks, you've had an adequate chance by that point to have seen the movie. If it's on Netflix, you have definitely had the chance to see it. So I take full freedom in, in doing spoiler alerts here. Um, I saw a movie a couple weeks back during our vacation, um, movie Interstellar. Guess maybe a few of you saw that. I'm not, not a huge sci-fi guy. James Adair, if he's in here, James Adair has been like heckling me to see this movie, and so I saw it on the plane. Not a huge sci-fi guy, but it's a great movie. And here's the spoiler: it's it's kind of one of those those parallel universe type of movies where where something is going on at the beginning of the movie that doesn't get revealed until at the end of the movie. And when you look back on that, you go, "Whoa! I want to go watch that movie again so I can see what it really looks like." You know, it's one of those things that plays out at the end. Well, today's passage is, is kind of like that uh, for, for Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're, we're in Ephesians. We, I've been preaching through Ephesians for a number of weeks, even months now. And we're in Ephesians, th that last chapter, if you want to open your Bibles you, or turn them on, you can do that. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul kind of saves the, kind of the, the closing punch for the, the end here. And he does this type of parallel universe thing that's going on, like, like things that we know to be true in the future that we're actually experiencing now, and it's just this kind of this weird dynamic. And, and so that's, that's actually what's going to happen today as we look at um, Ephesians chapter 6. If you're familiar with, with Christianity and the Bible, uh, this will be a very familiar passage to you. Um, I hope this will be a, a fresh perspective maybe for you. If you've heard a number of sermons preached on it, I'm hopeful that it'll be that for you. So today we're going to look at Ephesians beginning in chapter 6, uh, verse 10, and I'll read down through verse 20. Uh, this is the word of the Lord uh, for us this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, the word of our God, will stand forever. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we turn to you once again, pleading with you for help. Lord, we need your help to understand your word. Lord, our hearts are oftentimes cold and distant. They're distracted. They're weighed down. Lord, we, we hear things in the world speaking to us all the time. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would speak to us through your word. 
that you would use this man as a tool to clearly put forth your word and your son Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. I like to consider myself fairly well-read. Uh, I'm not like a big into like reading classical books or I'm, I'm not super well-read, but I do like to read. And uh, one of the areas that I am not very well-read in is in military battles. I've just never been a huge history guy. I know that disappoints some of you. You know, we can talk about that if we need to, but just have never been big into the military stuff. But, but this week, this passage, really the theme is that of war. And, and so I kind of got just searching out there to see what, what kind of books have been written on war and strategies and tactics. And, and I came across what is apparently, you know, the keystone work. It's called The Art of War by Sun Tzu. It's a, it's a 5th century, actually, 5th century BC writing uh, by a Chinese man. And it's, all, it's about war tactics and strategies in war. And I found a free online version of it. And so I kind of just, you know, I clicked on it and I kind of just started working through it. And it, it fascinated me. It's very basic. It's not like a lengthy book. It's actually kind of bullet pointed. And he, he just talks about all these different strategies in thinking about war and, and how we go about attacking our enemies and defending our, our people and those kinds of things. And, and in one of the sections, he talks about um, terrain. He's talking about the different terrains in war and, uh, you know, the strengths and the weaknesses of them. And in one of the sections, he talks about the, the importance of having higher ground on your enemy. Uh, he says this, he just says, with regard to precipitous heights, if you're there before your adversary, you should occupy the raised and sunny spots and there wait for your enemy to come up. And so he talks about the importance of being higher than your enemy. And this is for a variety of reasons, if you think through it. I mean, logistically, it takes more energy to go up a hill you know, from the top, you can see better, the t you know, your enemy coming upon you. You've got, like, the, the projectile aspect with gravity. I mean, there's just a variety of reasons why having the higher ground in war is, is significant. Here's the spiritual connection. I think as Christians, oftentimes we fight the spiritual war that's described, particularly in this passage, from the low ground. And the low ground is actually fighting from our own strength. It's actually the exhausting work of thinking that this is all up to us. It's the task of trusting in our own worth, trusting in our own ability, trusting in our own strength. This passage is going to give us a new war tactic. It's going to give us the war tactic that the art of war is suggesting. It's, it's to fight on higher ground. And the higher ground for the Christian is to fight and actually to stand firm, as we'll see as the main thrust of the passage, on the gospel of Jesus. That it's, it's actually the good news of Jesus on Calvary's hill that actually gives us Amen. the higher ground uh, for us to fight the fight. So here's what you need to know today as we look at this passage. That the only way to stand firm in the middle of a war is to know that the war is already won. So the only way for us to stand firm in the middle of the war that we're in is to know that the war has actually already been won for us. The, the passage gives us three, actually, it's commands. They're imperatives in the text, and so it really, it really lays out the points really easy for us. It tells us these three things that we need to do as Christians today. If you're a, a note taker, you can jot them down. We need to be strengthened, we need to stand firm, and we need to pray and watch. So be strengthened, stand firm, pray and watch. Look at verse 10 with me, if you will. Verse 10 is the headline news for our passage today. It lays out exactly what God wants from us. And verse 10 says he wants us to be strong. 
He wants us to be strong. In, in fact, the word there is actually in the passive tense. Sometimes our English misses this, but it's actually in the passive tense. In other words, it's something that's done to us. So uh, uh, perhaps an, an alternative way we could think of it is, is that we are made strong. We're not strong in ourselves, but we are actually made strong. Well, well, begs the question, how can we be made strong? Well, the text gives us the answer. It says to be in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, whose might? The Lord Jesus. Amen. You see, the, the, the entire thrust of the book of Ephesians has been to exalt the name of Jesus and his work for us. And so the strength comes from Jesus. It's not an internal thing. It's so anti-Western for us. We, we're told that we're to find the inner peace or to pull up our bootstraps and, and get on with life. But actually the text is telling us that our strength comes from an external source, not an internal source. It comes, it comes from the Lord and it comes from our union with the Lord. Well, well, how does that happen? The text goes on and it says in verse 11 that we're to put on the armor. Now, we're going to flesh that out in a minute, but suffice it to say for now that putting on the armor is that God strengthens you by protecting you. That's the primary means that God is showing us in this passage, that the way that you're going to be made strong is by getting protection from the Lord, the armor of God. Well, why, why do we need protection? The text goes on to tell us, what are we being protected from? Who are we being protected from? Well, verse 12, verse, the end of verse 11 says that we need to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. I need to pause there for a moment. To the Western, modern, scienced mind, you hear words like that in the Bible and you think it's antiquated and it's lost and we're talking about this devil now and, and, and I just can't believe in something like this. Well, let me just kind of just really briefly lay out what the Bible teaches about the devil, the enemy, the adversary. First off, it, it shows us that, that he's a, a creation of God. He was made by God. In fact, he's a spiritual being. He's an angel. And so because he's an angel who's been created by God, he answers to God. And so he stands under the authority of God. He is the deceiver of the world. He's called the father of lies. His great work is to rebel and undermine the authority of God. And so the Bible gives us many passages that we could kind of dive into, but, but those are the main things you need to know about Satan. He answers to God, he's God's adversary, and his primary task is to deceive the entire world. Um, the passage tells us that he's also a scheming and strategy type of figure. It tells us that the reason God's protecting us is so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil, his strategies. He has strategies to deceive you and to deceive me. One great book I've mentioned from time to time, and I'll mention it again, is a book called The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters is written by uh, C.S. Lewis, you know, 20th century author, uh, fantastic writer. I'm sure some of you have heard of him. The Screwtape Letters is this, this fanciful book. It's, it's this book that's written from the perspective of two demons. It's actually the senior demon, Uncle Screwtape, and then he's writing letters to the junior demon, uh, Wormwood. 
And so in these small, it's a really readable book, it's these small chapters, he lays out in letter fashion and form the ways that the devil should scheme against us. And so it's kind of this reverse psychology. And in one of the letters, he's talking to young Wormwood, and he's talking about their priority to deceive the Christian. And he, he says this, let me just read this, this brief little couple sentences. He's, again, remember, this is senior demon writing to the, to the junior demon. He says, I don't think you'll have much difficulty in keeping the patient, that's the Christian, the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he can't believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. You see, for you, the Western-minded Christian, you, you think that the devil, as the culture has perceived him, is somebody who wears red tights, carries the pitchfork, and has the, the horns. Well, nothing could actually be further from the truth. The, the Bible actually tells us that he comes as an angel of light. You see, two of the main strategies that the devil has against us is to do one of two things. It's either to blind you that he exists or to bury you in defeat. So those are the extremes, right? He either blinds you to his existence by thinking that it's a fanciful thing. How can someone actually believe in, in, in a devil? How can actually somebody believe that there's, there's this being who's going around deceiving people? And the way that this scheme plays out is there's a fixation on the now. There's this preoccupation with the world. There's this, this, this insistence that the only way to explain things is through modern science. And so that's the strategy of the enemy to get us to not believe, is to focus on that. The, the other extreme is to bury us in defeat. And, and this, this cloaks itself in this, this hyper-spirituality, right? Like the devil's hiding around every corner type of thing. I, I've, I vaguely remember in my mid-Christian years, I'm still a very young Christian, I vaguely remember getting a flat tire on the way to a new job and I blamed it on the devil, right? And the reality was I had a bald tire that hit a, t a nail, right? And, and God and his providence sought all that through and, and all of those kinds of things. But, but it's this kind of this, this hyper-spirituality where, where the devil's hiding around every corner and he's in every detail and we, we give him this authority that he has not been given. And so these are the two extremes. He either does not exist or he buries us in his existence. And, and we accredit him with godlike status. Here's the takeaway from the first point. The strength of the believer comes from the power of God. Hear this. You are not smart enough. You're not crafty enough. You're not clever enough. You're not strong enough to outsmart our enemy. You're just not. It is never on your own effort. The, 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 the power for you to be strong comes from the Lord. Uh, earlier in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I'll just read it. You don't have to flip there. In chapter 1, verse 19, Paul is describing the glory of Jesus' resurrection. He's, he's talking about the power of Christ rising from death to life and ascending. And he, he uses the very same language there in verse 19, when he says, And know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. See, the very same power that bodily raised Jesus from death to life to ascension 
is the very same power that's offered to the believer. It's the very same word. It's the very same context. Everything that God has been showing us, that everything that was working for Jesus is yours in him. It comes from outside of you. The believer is strengthened through that power. So Jesus calls us to be strengthened. The second thing he calls us to do is to stand firm, looking at verses 13 to 16. One of the major dilemmas, as it were, for the Christian from, from Jesus' first appearance to where we stand right now in history is the discussion surrounding Jesus' return. Again, if you've been around Christianity uh, for any amount of time, you, you'll know that there are divisive views on Jesus' return. And one of the great things about the Bible is it does give us some parameters, but the, the language it uses of the, the distance or the time between Jesus' first appearance when God became a man in the flesh 2,000 plus years ago, the historical event of Jesus arriving to us, to his imminent return, that gap, which is, which is unknown, the Bible tells us, it is, it, it is to be sure going to happen, but we are uncertain about it. That gap, as it has widened, has produced this mass frenzy of, of hysteria of when will this happen? And the Bible puts terms on it, and it calls that gap a number of things. It calls it this present age. It calls it the evil day, as it does in our text today. And the, the, the wideness of that gap and everything that's happened in between it, between it has caused this, just this kind of this caught-upness in figuring out when he'll return. You see, when we read the scriptures, you're t you're, you're, Paul's writing to Christians, many, some Christians who have actually seen the resurrect, resurrected Christ. Paul saw him in his resurrected form. That will change you, right? Like if you have an encounter with the risen Lord, that's going to shake up your life a little bit. We haven't had that encounter. And so the way the Bible speaks is to a people who have been entirely caught up by the resurrection. It has flipped their entire world upside down. But what we see is this resolute commitment to standing in the victory that he won. The passage, um, it shifts. So if you've been with us through Ephesians, you know that it's used a lot of the language of walking. You know, walk in love, walk in truth. It's, it's kind of been this, this moving forward, this marching as a pilgrim type of theme that's been in Ephesians. Well, today's passage actually, it stops us in our tracks and it changes the movement and it tells us just to stand. It doesn't tell us to, to walk like it has been. And so there's this change where we're no longer on the offensive, but now in some form or fashion we're on the defensive, that we're just called to hold our ground. Do you remember where Paul's writing this from? I've mentioned it a number of times. He's in prison in Rome. And so Paul is in a, probably a, a house prison of some sort. We don't really know exact details of it. It's not like our prison system. But there would have been many Roman soldiers that were attending to Paul. And so we can assume, as Paul's penning this letter, that he's actually looking at a Roman soldier. And so he connects that analogy to the, to the soldier who's holding him captive and he, he fleshes out what it means to be a Christian who's standing firm on the high ground. And he uses the soldier analogy. Let me just briefly touch on each of those pieces. Again, this is not the kind of the thrust of, of the sermon or, or the passage. But he tells us that the first piece is the belt of truth. Now, this is not just objective truth and facts. 
This isn't Bible knowledge 101. This isn't just good theology, right? It's not less than that, but it's not just that. You see, I think when we, again, Western-minded, I'm kind of bashing on this Western mindset, when we hear the belt of truth, we think it's something that we know. But what the Bible's talking about is not something just that we know, but it's something that we experience. And so it's this experiential knowledge that when it gets in you, it actually, it girds you is the language of the passage. It covers you. It would have been the thigh area. So it's not just the objective truths and reality, but it's the subjectiveness of it that creates a certainty and a confidence. The second piece is, is this breastplate of righteousness covering the kind of the core of the soldier. And the righteousness of God is a theme that runs thick through the New Testament. But essentially, it's this certainty that the believer has that one is made right with the Lord. And the righteousness that's afforded to us is one that can withstand accusations. Not just accusations of the enemy, but the accusations that hold up in the court of God. You see, what the believer is offered in Jesus is not just his death, but you get his life. And so this breastplate that covers you is, is by no means some extension of your efforts or your religious activity. Rather, it's a gift of imputation. It's a, it's a credit that's given to you that covers you. The third piece is the shoes of readiness. Listen, if you're in the middle of a war and someone tells you it's, peace has happened, what does that do to you? I mean, if you look at, look at the passage, I didn't write the, the verse down here. Verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So in other words, Paul's picking up on the, the, this theme of reconciliation and peace with God that alters your readiness to go to war. You know, the, the sandals of this time, it's kind of a little bit of a, a study here. The sandals of this time would have had these little pins or, or nails in them that would have helped them to claw down into the terrain. And, and, and Paul's really making this connection between the way their shoes work and the way the gospel works. When you know you've been reconciled to your maker, that allows you to stand firm and take accusations. The only way you can withstand the, the, the attacks and the assault is to have something that's gripping you and firming you down, and that's the gospel of peace. The fourth piece is the shield of faith. Um, the, the, the shield is not one of those like Captain America is just a little circle that's really there just for show. These shields were, were sturdy, sturdy, leather-bound, full-body armor that would have been able to absorb even flaming darts, as the text gives us that, that, that word picture. And so it talks about how the enemy throws these, these flaming arrows at us. And only the shield of faith can absorb attack like that. Here's what I know you're thinking, because this is what I was thinking. Well, it's surely how strong my faith is, how resilient it is, how, how, how boldly I'm believing and telling others about Jesus, but it's actually the op opposite. It's not this time the subjectivity of your, of your faith, but it's the object of your faith. And so, only Christ alone can absorb that kind of punishment and assault for you. And so your safety, your refuge is not found in how much you believe or how strong your faith in or how zealous your religious activity is. It's actually found in the one whom you're placing your trust in. It's found in Christ alone. So it tells us to take our stand in these things, to stand firm, to hold our ground, 
The, the other two pieces I'm going to deal with in the last portion here because that's, that's the activity of taking them up. But here's the takeaway from point two. I need you to know that standing firm requires God's provision and God's protection. You see, Christianity and the Bible are primarily telling us our main problem is not just the evil out there. It's the evil in here. It's not just the things that we see in our world and the horrific acts of evil, though they are a problem and they will be dealt with. But Jesus first and foremost came not to slaughter our government structures and all that's wrong with them. He came to humble the heart in brokenness. You see, Christianity tells us essentially that we are liable to not just the accusations of the enemy, but to God's judgment. It talks about how God is holy, holy, holy. There is no other God like him. Who can stand in his presence? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And the answer is nobody. And so what God offers us in the gospel is protection and provision. And he offers us the righteousness that's needed to withstand judgment. You see, Christianity offers, Jesus offers provision and protection to anyone who would ask for it. To anyone. Regardless of what your colored past has looked like, regardless of what your current situation is, and regardless of what the forecast of your future might be, pardon, protection, and provision are offered to you in Jesus. Now, I know there are a variety of flavors and stripes of people in here, and, and I think some of you think that you are strong enough on your own. And the way this plays out typically is this is, is this is the religious stripe. This is people who think that if we attend every Bible study that, that we offer as a church, or if they're at every prayer meeting, even if it's awkwardly just with the pastor, or if it's, you know, just this, this faithful, this perfect attendance on Sunday, which I love perfect attendance on Sunday, don't get me wrong, but it's this, this ability to stand on something we've done. That's what it looks like to think that you're strong enough on your own. But the other stripe is actually the irreligious stripe. And this is people who say, well, I'm too weak to protect. I'm too far gone. You don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know the depths of my heart. And though I may not know them, Jesus does. And the, the types of people that Jesus encountered and engaged when he was here on this land were those types. The irreligious stripe. The weak, the prone, the failures, the ignorant, those are the type. But there's a third way that, that Jesus offers you, and it's the gospel way, and it's really simple. It's to see your need for provision and protection and then to ask for it. It's really that simple, that the Lord wants us to see our sin as it is and to delight in the ways that he's provided and ask him to armor us. And ask him to help us to stand firm in the midst of the raining storm. But the last thing that he wants us to do today is to pray and to watch. Looking at verses 17 uh, down through 20. I'm not sure how daylight savings time is treating you. Uh, it's, it's deeply punishing us. Um, Listen, we've been parents now for, I guess, six plus years. And, uh, you know, first child, 
first couple years, we were super structured on the sleep thing. We had like, I think, a two-month game plan for how to handle daylight savings, right? It's like, okay, you know, increments of 10-minute later bedtime, and we got like formulas. Well, we're two kids down the road, you know, six years later, we just kind of snuck up on us, right? It was like, oh, we got to change our clocks back tonight. So regardless, daylight savings time, though I've known it's coming, and though I know it tends to bring our children up really early in the morning, I did nothing about it. And, and, you know, honestly, those years that we did something about it, it really didn't help that much anyway. So the analogy breaks down there. But, but th- this, this readiness, even though you know something's coming. So the, the Bible's very clear. Here's the connection. You've been warned that attacks are all around us and they're coming. Okay? And now you're given the tactic to approach those. So let's not be ignorant and let's do what the text tells us to do. And it's really simple. It tells us to take up two more things. It tells us to take up the helmet, and it tells us to take up the sword. So these are the two kind of offensive, offensive, not defensive, type of postures that the passage is suggesting for us. The first is that helmet of salvation. Now, I'm not a soldier by any stretch of the imagination. I've never been a football player, but I know that if you wear a helmet, that provides some different type of level of security for you. You're, you're, you're protecting that, the, just the delicacy of the mind and the skull and the fragility of all that. And so there's something about having a helmet on that gives you this deeper level of assurance. And that's exactly what Paul's going for. When, when a soldier knew that war was coming, he would have already had everything else on. But when you see the enemy coming, you put your helmet on and you get your weapon. And that's what he's telling us to do. He's saying, Christian, the attacks are coming. Put your helmet on. And, and the helmet's the, the helmet of salvation. Knowing security and safety are ours in Christ. Knowing that there is nothing that can happen, no power, of man, no power of hell, no scheme of man, we sung that, can ever pluck us from his hand. That's what the gospel's giving us. That's what Paul's telling us. Put that on and know that that's yours. He tells us to take up the sword of the spirit. Uh, a lot of times we think that this is the Bible generally, but it, it's really not. It's actually any spoken word of the gospel, of the good news that assaults the kingdom of darkness. And so he tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the living God. And then verse 18, he says, pray. Praying at all times in the Spirit. All the time praying. Well, praying for what? Well, the the end of verse 19 tells us specifically, Paul wants us to pray that the gospel would go forth boldly, that the good news about Jesus would be boldly proclaimed Because that is how the enemy's kingdom falls. When when good news is delivered to bad news people. When when darkness is offended by light. And pray for what? And and then stay alert? What's the the perseverance part? Well, the the staying alert part is is to, to pray. It's actually just staying alert to keep praying. Pray so that you can pray and stay alert so that you can pray. Anyone ever fallen asleep while praying? Let's be honest here. We've all fallen asleep while praying. I'm going to go say my bedtime prayers. You're like snoring in 10 seconds. Okay, so the irony of that is that the purpose of prayer is to keep us alert, to keep praying. Praying for not only the other saints, it says for all the saints, but for the gospel to go forward. For the gospel to move into the kingdom of darkness. I want to close here um, 
this morning. Uh, Donald Barnhouse was an old Presbyterian minister, um, I think mid-19th century or 20th century. He was on the radio, so I guess it was later 20th century. He was on the radio, and he had this program. I think, I don't know that it was a sermon, but I think it was more of a radio program. And he was asked the question, uh, what would it look like if Satan, the enemy, the adversary, were to take over a city? And, and Donald Barnhouse was a pastor in the city of Philadelphia. And so he's speaking to his own context. And, and, and I love what he said here. Listen to how he responded to the question, what would it look like if Satan took over a city? Here's what he said. If Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday. Churches where Christ was not preached. You see, what we think of the enemy's attacks is red tights and horns. But what the reality is, is that the enemy's tax is anything void of Jesus. Our main frontal assault on the kingdom of darkness is to tell the world about the good news of Jesus. To tell the world how there is a man who came to set captives free. That there is a man who came to live the life that you could not pull off on your own strength. To tell the world that there is a man who took death by its throat and threw it to the ground on a Roman cross. You see, the way we think evil should be accomplished is through war. But the way that it was accomplished is through war on a cross of a man willingly laying down his life for people who did not deserve it. And so when we look at the Roman crucifixion of an innocent man 2,000 plus years ago, this is not a mere example for us to follow. This is a man for us to worship. And it doesn't end there. He didn't just live the life that was yours. He didn't just die the death that you earned but he rose bodily. Jesus, the God-man, took on flesh again. It wasn't some spiritual resurrection in their hearts. It wasn't just some warm and fuzzy thoughts. The God-man was brought from death to life, making a declaration over your death, believer, making a declaration over the sin that should have punished you. And so right now, there is a God-man ruling over the cosmos. Did you know that? That Jesus in the flesh is ruling over everything and nothing can thwart his will. He's bringing a kingdom here right now. And the kingdom is coming through the good news. And so primarily our goal is not to establish godly governments. It's to have broken hearts before the good news that's laid before us. He's ascending. He's ruling. He's coming back. Evil will never be defeated through our morality. Evil will never be defeated through our political activity. Evil will never be defeated through nice, friendly, smiling Christians. Evil will only be defeated through the slaying of the Son of Man on behalf of sinners. Would you believe that good news today? Perhaps you're here today and the, the paradigm that you've heard is that you're being invited into this morality into this moralistic type living where, where if you become a Christian that it's all about changing your vices and your habits and your hang-ups. It's so much more than that. God wants so much more than that. 
He wants all of you. Jesus is ruling over his kingdom through his gospel. Would you believe that good news today? Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, our hearts come bloodied and beaten up after an election week in our country that has just shown the true disobedience of our hearts, Lord. We're divided. We have sides that we part with and we think that government's the solution and it's just not. And so, Lord, forgive us for that. Help us to see the kingdom that you're building here, the kingdom where you establish the rulers over lands that you want, whether that is to raise up and heal our land or whether it's to crush and crumble it. Lord, we want your kingdom to come. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to believe the good news and to take the good news and to be clothed in the good news that we might see the kingdom of darkness fall in the kingdom of the sunrise. Lord, would you do that even in our small little gathering, in all of our hearts, even today? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.